everyone. I'm Harper. I'm Jonathan. And this is Hawkeyes. Authentic knowledge and feelings. I feel it. I feel it. Hey, yeah, I know where you're going with this. You want a little cliff that makes everybody laugh and feel good. You know what I mean? Instead, it's like, Whoa. But I'm really not funny. No, no, no. And we shouldn't have a contract. What? <laughs> okay. joined today by a very special guest you may remember him he was our first ever guest on the podcast yes. uh it's my father warren oh my god hello hello <laughs> <laughs> How, how's everyone doing hot it's hot yeah but you know we're doing all right um it's hot it is hot uh, right. yeah um just chilling, taking it easy. You know, today is the um, going to be the premiere of Ethan Hawke's show, the day that we're recording. Uh, Good Lord Bird starts tonight. So that's exciting for us and all Ethan Hawke fans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, are you still there? You look frozen. Oh, okay. You're back. Um, I've been seeing ads and billboards. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're really they're really pushing the show. I think it's going to be bit big. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. hoping. Fingers crossed for an Emmy next year. Um. Yeah. Jonathan, how are you? I'm great. You're great. Mm-hmm. Great. Warren, how are you? <laughs> I, you know, I have my issues, but I'm doing all right. That's good. <laughs> um. Well, thank you for joining us on the show. This is very exciting. Um, Maybe, I don't remember how much we got into this last time, but it was like a year and a half ago. So could you maybe talk a little bit about your relationship with Ethan Hawke and if it's changed over the last year or so? I guess year and almost two years. Is is that possible? Uh, No, year. The last year since we had you on, yeah. So I honestly don't remember um, exactly what I said about my relationship with Ethan Hawke when That's we okay. recorded it'll be, that podcast. Yeah, it'll probably be um, fresh for I, everyone. But I, I, I did look over his um, filmography, mm-hmm. and I, I, I saw Dead Poet Society, which we talked about. I wasn't crazy about it, but uh-huh. when I watched it. I, a while ago, I, I liked it a little bit more than I first remembered it. Um, I saw Water Waterland. Is it Waterland? Waterland, yeah. Mm-hmm. I saw Waterland, but it was so long ago that I hardly remember anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did see Before Sunrise, which I really found charming. I love the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I did not see Before Sunset. I have still not seen that. But then I did see Before Midnight, which I found excruciatingly I, difficult to watch. I can't even believe. I, I, I'm I sure that we've had this conversation several times since we started this podcast. But I can't believe that you've seen the first and third of that uh-huh. series and not the second. It baffles the mind. 
uh, I know it's crazy. It is crazy. crazy. And especially because I think for so many people before sunset is the big one. Like that's most people's favorite of the trilogy. So. Yeah. You know, I have a special event coming up in my personal life, which is that I'll be retiring soon. Yes. And, And one of the things I look forward to doing when I retire is watching that second film in the trilogy so that that's on my to-do list for sure yeah that'll be fun and i'm i'm looking i may have to go back and revisit all three you know in, mm-hmm. yeah. in sequence yeah yeah so i'm looking forward to that um the movie training day i started to watch that and i found it so disturbing personally <laughs> that i i turned it off wow and I, I don't remember why exactly it just really like it, it rubbed me the wrong way and I stopped watching it. So I, I never saw that movie all the way through. Amazing. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I missed one. Going back, I also recently, because of your podcast, I watched the movie Great Expectations, oh. which I found which I found a little bit peculiar, um, but I enjoyed watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then Harper, you may remember since I saw it with you, we saw that we saw Daybreakers together, the yes, vampire movie. I do remember that we saw that together in 2009. We uh, saw that at the AMC in Century City, and that was a lot of fun. And then I did, I actually watched it again recently on cable television. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty much the way I remembered it, which was that it was kind of an, an interesting curiosity. I think maybe you liked it a little bit more than I did, but. Um, I, I didn't mind it. I thought it was fun to watch. Um, the more meaningful film to me probably is the film from 2013, The Purge. Yes. Um, because because you may remember that you and your mother took me to see that for Father's Day. That was my yeah. special Father's Day movie. It's a really and special that was, movie. That was a treat to go see that movie for Father's Day. And... Um, after that, you may remember we replaced that by going to see mo- tragic movies about dying teenagers. We did, <laughs> yes. We did proceed yeah. to see The Fault in Our Stars after that. The Fault in um, Our and Me and, me and Earl, Earl and the, the Dying, dying Girl. Girl. Yeah. And then this year, I enjoyed watching um, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always about the oh, girl yes. taking the bus ride to New York City to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. So, um, all good films. Yeah. Um, also, Boyhood. Mm-hmm. A classic. Saw that with you as well. Mm-hmm. And I loved Boyhood. And um I think it's an amazing achievement and it is number six on my top one hundred films of all time list. Wow. So, That's um, huge. I, I I love that movie. So that means a lot to me. And then the other movie really that I think that comes to mind for me with Ethan Hawk is where he played a sort of a I don't know, like a barker or someone trying to pull customers into a strip joint in the movie Valerian. Yes, we yes, recently we watched watch that, that for the first time. Which um, I got a big kick out of. I, I, I like that movie. I thought it was fun and I, I love the visuals. Yeah, no, that yeah, was we had a, a similar takeaway, yeah, I think. I agree. Um, cool. Was there anything? Oh, you saw, we saw Blaze with you too. We saw, Bla- oh, I'm sorry. Yes, we saw Blaze and mm. I liked that. I enjoyed that film. And I particularly enjoyed seeing the Q&A afterwards mm-hmm. with Ethan Hawke. And it struck me watching the Q&A that he seemed like a, a down-to-earth person um, who was realistic about his career as an artist. And I, I, I liked the movie, and I, I really enjoyed just hearing him talk about 
his work and in the Q and A afterwards. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, hopefully one day we'll get to talk to him directly. But yeah. yes, it was definitely a treat to see him that night. Um, okay, cool. Well, thank you for doing such an in-depth uh, dive into your relationship with Ethan Hawke. Um, uh, sure. Yeah, so Happy the movie to. we're talking about today is Juliet Naked, which I have to let Woo! you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Go ahead. Um, no, I have to let you know that so many people over the last year have asked to come on the show to talk about this movie, and I had to say, sorry, it's uh, my dad called Dibs. Um, wow, I really appreciate that you say this for me because, yeah. it, honestly, I and I and I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been preparing for this podcast. For some reason, that probably I could only unearth in therapy. <laughs> This story, this book, and this story, and this movie have all, are for some sort of, they have some kind of a deep-seated meaning to me, which I still don't quite understand, but I I, I love the book, so it, it, I'm, I'm excited to be talking about this today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the book came out, like, what, like 10 years ago now, right? And so... It came out in 2009. Yeah, so, and I remember you reading it back then and being really into it, and I, you know, and you're a big fan of, like, most of Nick Hornby's books, right? I am. I, I read About a Boy. I read A Long Way Down. Um, yeah. There's something... I, I, I like his style because he has a very articulate way of describing normal people in an intelligent and humorous fashion. And that's, for me, that's just very appealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never actually read any Nick Hornby, uh, Jonathan, if you have. Um, But yeah, I'd like to. I mean, I, you know, I enjoy About a Boy, the movie. I've seen the movie a bunch and I, it's a classic. Um, And I really, I really like Juliet Naked. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I like that album he did with Ben Folds. Did I imagine that? Was that Nick Hornby uh, wrote the lyrics for Ben Folds on an album one time? Um, I'm not sure, but that sounds possible. Yeah, I think that happened and I did enjoy that. So I feel like I feel like I would like his books. I've just never I've just never read any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think he was also involved in the screenplay for an education. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know who else is a big Nick Hornby fan is Ethan Hawke. Um, mm-hmm. I found an interview with him where he was talking about how he wanted to he had previously wanted to be in high fidelity and about a boy and he wasn't able to be in either of those movies so now he was so when he got the part in juliet naked he was like very excited to finally be uh working on a nick hornby project that's very interesting to me yeah i think i mean high fidelity i i know i watched it a million years ago and i don't really have a great memory of it but i'm familiar with the concept and uh i feel like he would have fit really naturally into that kind of you know uh, 90s record store gen x world mm-hmm. of high fidelity and i could see him i can see him weirdly being like you know uh kind of like the hugh grant character in about a boy i think he would have had a very different approach to it but i could totally see that for him yeah so i have i have some comments about the casting in this film but i don't know if you want to talk about that now or later 
yeah, why don't we just get into it? So, um, just quick uh, synopsis of Julia Naked. Basically, Ethan Hawke plays Tucker Crow, mm-hmm. who is, uh, you know, like a star from the early 90s, Gen X rock star, um, who disappeared in like the mid 90s and stopped making music. And um, meanwhile, in a small town in England, we have Chris O'Dowd, who's like a super fan that runs a forum. And Rose Byrne is his, you know, suffering, long suffering girlfriend who has to hear about his obsession mm-hmm, with Tucker mm-hmm. Crow. Um, and that's kind of where we start. Um, so, yeah, what, are, what do we all feel about this movie? Jonathan, what did you think? I liked it. You I liked thought it was it? fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, there's, it's not the, it doesn't reinvent the wheel no. in terms of cinema. <laughs> um but it's a lot of fun and and i think everyone everyone delivers a great performance and there's enough uh kind of it's just silliness to keep you engaged mm-hmm. definitely definitely silly like just good silly vibes mm-hmm. um warren what about you so, you like so I, I i just wanted to say um that when i read the book which I was very taken with. Um, I, I I love the story. I, 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 I like his comment, Nick Hornby's way of combining plot with character. And he comes up with some sort of kind of really goofy kind of plot inventions. Um, and he, he definitely does that here. Um, but when I read the book, um, I d- didn't really have ideas about who should play either Tucker Crow. Although in my head, I I sort of thought a little bit like, well, he's kind of a Chris Christopherson type. But I knew that Chris Christopherson would be too would be too old. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I really didn't I really didn't have anything in my head about who should play Tucker Crow, and it was kind of a a question in my mind, but. After reading the book, the novel, the first time, in my head, until the movie came out, I always thought of Annie as Kate Winslet. Oh, I could see that always. for sure. Like I always thought of, I, I thought like this is Kate Winslet's part. Mm-hmm. And when I found when I found out Rose Byrne was in in was cast, it, that was a real issue for me. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I saw the movie, the first time like i was i had like a chip on my shoulder watching it (laughs) because it wasn't kate winslet Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um more recent so i I, getting ready for this podcast i've watched it two more times and each time i found that i I, i'm moving more towards being able to accept rose burnham part (laughs) (laughs) do you Um, think that um the holiday maybe had any influence on your on your wanting kate winslet in this role because I think that that character is very similar to Annie in this movie. Maybe, but I just, I, I, I can't remember when I saw The Holiday or when it came out. But I, when I read, the, as I was reading the book the first time, I just always saw her as Annie. I just, imag- like, immediately, like, yeah, just while I was reading the book, I just thought, oh, this is Kate Winslet. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's I, I think that's some inspired casting. I totally agree. I think that 
maybe what they were going for here with Rose Byrne is like a little bit more of a comedy angle. Not that she doesn't do drama as well, but Rose Byrne has done like a number of comedies. Not that Kate Winslet also can't do comedy, but I think she does lean more towards drama, you know? So I feel like having like Rose Byrne and Chris O'Dowd in this movie makes it more like if you like bridesmaids, you might also like, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. you know, instead of like, if you liked, you know, the reader, you might also like. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, or, um, uh, Calvary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, Chris, no, yeah, Chris I, O'Dowd is great in that movie. Yeah. Can I make a, a couple of little connections here? Sure. sure. So I, I, I always imagine Kate Winslet in the part of Annie. Kate Winslet also made a movie that is a guilty pleasure for me called Labor Day. Um, uh huh. Yeah, with uh, with Josh, Josh Brolin, Brolin mm-hmm. where she plays where she plays someone, a woman who is with her son is sort of taken hostage by an escaped prisoner, um, played by Josh Brolin. And as they're being held hostage, they find that he becomes a father and a and a husband figure to them both. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really just I, I, I love that movie. I, every time it's on, I watch it and I, I always totally fall into it. Um, and I, the reason I'm bringing this up is because Labor Day is based on a novel written by a woman named Joyce Maynard. Mm-hmm. Joyce Maynard is a person who um, was a writer in high school and college. She wrote things she went to Yale and she wrote things she wrote pieces that were published and the pieces that she wrote while she was in Yale caught the attention of the writer J.D. Salinger Mm. and they they developed a correspondence and she actually ended up going and living with J.D. Salinger for and they had an eight-month relationship wow oh was that in the documentary I, I yes I'm sure it was brought up in the Salinger documentary and the reason I bring this up is because to me, when I read the book, I, I made that connection right away of Tucker Crow being a Salinger-like artist, you know, who mm-hmm. sort of, who, who hits the sort of the peak of his popularity and then all of a sudden just stops doing anything mm-hmm. and, be, and then becomes sort of a little bit of a myth, you know, which is, which is ultimately what becomes the subject of Annie's boyfriend's website, Duncan, you know, talking about what's happened to Tucker Crow. And so I just found all these kind of interesting connections in this. Very interesting. Oh, and one other thing, just one other, just to add a little fine point to this. This is not brought up in the movie, but in the book, in the novel, Nick Hornby writes a fake Wikipedia entry for Tucker Crow, Mm -hmm. which which mentions that Tucker Crow's middle name is Jerome, which is salinger's first name and also tucker crow's father's name was jerome so um just thought i'd mention that wow that's fun well why don't we uh talk our way through this movie so uh i i really love the way that this movie starts off it's um chris o'dowd is like uh in a vlog it starts like on the web page of this tucker crow fan blog that chris o'dowd runs Mm -hmm. and so it starts with a vlog where he's giving us like all of the background information that we could possibly need to know on tucker crow um which is like kind of a clever way to do exactly that um 
and there are and it's kind of like a slideshow of like you know old photos of uh ethan hawk as tucker crow but they're actual old photos of ethan hawk and i think part of what makes him work so well as tucker crow is that he does have like this exactly same timeline basically where he was uh you know, like a young heartthrob in the early 90s. And so there are all of these really incredible photos of him, like probably from Reality Bites or associated, you know, uh, shoots from that time. Um, But, and uh, so that's that's fun. And you immediately get a sense of like who Tucker Crow is and who Chris O'Dowd is and what his relationship is to him. Mm -hmm. Um, And after that, though, it does cut to Annie narrating um and uh she uh runs the local history museum and she's dating chris o'dowd and uh she just kind of describes herself as like a really normal person mm-hmm. which is um you know fun i don't know i feel like most people wouldn't describe themselves as normal she's a she's a normal but neurotic character yes um and i would say that that is true as well of of Tucker Crow and of Duncan. Duncan, who, by the way, I'd just like to mention his last name is Thompson, spelled the way that Harper Thompson and Warren Thompson both spelled their, their last name. <laughs> yes, I wrote that I, down. That was very exciting for me. And also, I, I thought it was I thought it was interesting that when they um, there there are shots of the seaside town of Sandcliff where she lives with Duncan mm-hmm. and in the background from where from where her place is there's a place across the street that looks like it's a bar or restaurant called Harper's. Yeah. Oh, yes, I I took note of that. <laughs> and I feel yeah. like the the building frame was yellow too. Maybe. Yeah, I think that that particular the sign was like it was like a red background with gold letters, but mm-hmm. maybe the building around it was yellow, I don't remember. Um but yeah, so many fun connections in this movie. <laughs> um, oh, when... um, I, oh, I just want to mention too that also the, the three characters, in addition to being neurotic, I, and this this I think goes back to Nick Hornby's style, which is that they're all kind of self-effacing. Like, and this comes out a little bit more in the book, but they're all pretty aware of how they behave. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very self, they're very self-aware type characters. And I think that that's just um, part of the way that Nick Hornby writes characters, but that's also part of what makes them so, so likable is that they're, they're aware of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think... Even if it's obnoxious sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I think one place where you really do see that is um, kind of the event that kicks off the whole, you know, sequence of the entire movie is, um, Duncan receives in the mail a copy of this album that's titled Juliet Naked, which is like, you know, these like stripped down acoustic demos of the Tucker Crow album, Juliet. And um, just kind of out of habit, Rose Byrne opens his mail and she ends up playing the album um, and she's listening to it and just like, like, uh, like topless because she was trying on a dress. There's like this whole like, you know, like very real life circumstances where she had been cooking and she was trying on a new dress that she got and then she took it off and she was topless and then she was listening to the album and then the smoke alarm goes off because she Mm. was distracted and she forgot that she was cooking um but so she ends up listening to the album before he does 
And Duncan, Chris O'Dowd, being the way that he is, was very upset about this. And I think this this whole fight that they have really captures... It's an act of betrayal. He calls <laughs> it an act of betrayal. Yeah. yeah. And I think that this this whole fight scene captures exactly what you were saying about how they are these kind of neurotic characters, but they know what's like wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Now, um, can I can I stop you for a second here? Yeah. Um, I just want to mention that so that that scene happens fairly quickly in the movie. In the book, it goes on for quite a while, and she has and Annie has this pretty long debate with herself over whether or not to listen to the CD. Hmm. Mm. And I just I, I just want to I, I want to read a quote to you from the book of her interior like th- thought process. Mm-hmm. In the book, she says, "Could she really listen to it before he did?" It felt like one of those moments in a relationship, and there were enough of them in theirs, God knows, that would look completely innocuous to an outsider, but which were packed with meaning and aggression. She knew that playing the CD was an act of naked hostility. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I mean, that that definitely changes things. There's just this long internal dialogue with her, like, should I listen? Shouldn't I listen? But she really wants to. She's mad. She's angry with him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that definitely changes things a little bit. Yeah. I feel like I I feel like I personally I would more feel like, "Oh, you're interested in this thing that I like for me, I think my interpretation of the situation, like if I was in his place, would have been more charitable, which would be like, "Oh, you're showing interest in this thing that you haven't really shown interest in before." You know what I mean? I guess. But I think that, like, because he knows that she definitely has no interest in it, then it does end up just being, like, kind of spiteful. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. I want to throw in one more quote from the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Annie has another thought where she's, she's thinking to herself, she'd been with Duncan for nearly 15 years, and Tucker Crow had always been part of the package like a disability. Jeez. So, you know, she has a lot of mixed feelings about Duncan and Tucker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Until I think until she starts to kind of get to know Tucker and then she realizes that they have a lot in common. Mhm. Um yeah, another oh, another minor character I wanted to mention was uh her sister Roz or Rose who's uh uh, a lesbian and we just kind of see her coming in and out of the movie with like all of these girlfriends or like right. you know uh romance situations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and one of the girlfriends that we do see i did not look up the actress's name but she plays pim on cursed and i was like oh it's pim from cursed so that was exciting she's like the redheaded one from the beginning mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um she's very she, good she's the one in the movie when they when they come over to dinner and they had that conversation about, you know, are you and Duncan, do you and Duncan have children? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then, you know, they have, they both talk about how they didn't, they made the decision not to have children, but, but she's the one, there's a shot of her looking at, at Annie where you, you pick up that she gets that like there's something going on with Annie about having children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Definitely. So, yeah. So after the whole, uh, you know, fight about listening to the CD. Uh, Duncan ends up posting about it on his forum, and uh, you know, people are responding positively to his review. But then, uh, you know, just to kind of like 
stay in this uh you know altercation um annie ends up uh commenting on his review and completely like tearing apart uh juliet naked yeah um basically making the point that like you know they aren't finished songs they can't be better than the finished songs um which i get but also i understand why duncan would be so mad at that take Mm -hmm. because if it was like an album that i loved a lot and i got to hear like the the origins you know of the album i would be so excited i i completely understand where he's coming from yeah yeah um and it made me think i think the only like uh like stripped naked whatever kind of like album that i've ever had was uh gavin DeGraw. there was (laughs) like the the version of chariot that we have yeah it was like a double album the one was like the original and the other side or the other album was the uh chariot stripped or Mm -hmm, something mm -hmm. uh it's very fun yeah i mean the most direct analogy i can think of is the there's let it be and then there's let it be naked Mm -hmm. which is like the same kind of naming scheme where let it be naked is like the release after and it's like supposed to be a more stripped down version or whatever Mm -hmm. yeah but then based on that uh review you know tucker crow just happens to be on the website and Mm -hmm. he sees her her comment and i I don't know clearly like it seems like he clearly trowels it regularly yeah i mean that's true um like i I feel like i get i get the sense that he he's sort of divorced from his past as you know a semi-successful musician but he has enough maybe either morbid curiosity or just like some amount of ego left that he like just kind of wants to see what what's going on on this website and it seems like he probably he he must check it like not all the time but regularly enough that he would catch something like that you know what i mean Mm -hmm. true um yeah and then based on that he emails her yeah uh which i wonder i don't know i mean not to get too much into the logistics of how this would work but how did he get her email? Like, how how exactly is this forum set up that you... Because I feel like most of the time, if she was just making, like, a kind of, like, a... Throwaway. Yeah, like, an account that she was using just to, like, flame the album and then get out of there. Like, she wasn't really... She's not really an active member of this community. You know, why would she have used her real email? Well, and, it, like, could, it could be that and the why forum... Would it, be? I, it could be that the forum... He might not have been able to find her email from her profile... But she might have had it set up to where notifications from the forum, since she's not going to regularly check it anyway, would go to her email. And so she... Do you see what I mean? I do see what you mean. But I feel like it... I don't know. Like, would it have been a direct message to her on the forum, you think? Yeah, that's that what I think. That went to her email? Interesting. Yeah. If, if that's the logistical problem you have, I think that's the most logical explanation, which is that he res- he sent a message to her from the forum... And then it went to her email. Okay, that's fine. I yeah, I, I was thinking. I was thinking it was something like what Jonathan's saying. Um, but it, 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 there's a little bit of element of suspension of disbelief. But I just wanted to believe it anyway. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Whether whether or not it was realistic, I went with it. I just went with it. But that that's one of those kind of goofy plotting things that I was talking about that he sometimes does. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I also believe that she might just be like you know not 
very good at the internet just based on uh like you know there are a couple things about what that her sister say about her not being like up to date like she's never been on a dating website or you know stuff like Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. um that also maybe imply that maybe she's just not good at using the internet and it's possible that she did set up this account with her real email and like there's like a contact me button you know yeah exactly that she just didn't even think she wouldn't think about it yeah this forum might be different than like other social media sites yeah because he has like regular chats with like people video chats with people in the Mm -hmm. in the forum yeah um, I mean, could you imagine being so obsessed with, like, Ethan Hawke that you would, <laughs> I don't know, like, make a video or, like, record a podcast? I mean, that's just... Kooky. That's just something else. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, so he emails her and he says, couldn't have said it better myself, Tucker Crow. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and, uh, yeah, so that's kind of fun. And then we get to see a little bit of Ethan Hawke as Tucker Crow and how he lives his life. He lives in like the garage, like a big garage uh, at his ex-wife's house. And I was like, is this just Ethan Hawke's actual house? It's not. I know it's not. I think they filmed it in the UK. But um, it does look quite a bit like his barn in mm-hmm. his real home in New York. Um, how do you know that, Harper? Because uh, he uh, he made that music video for for Maya Hawk. He filmed a music video for her in that uh, barn. Oh, okay. Yeah, Woodwreck. Uh, I can't remember the song, but I think if you just look up Maya Hawk music video, it'll come up. Okay. Um, but yeah, and so he is basically like taking care of his his youngest son, um, with that ex wife, uh, played by Aji Robertson. Which I was like, oh, who is this kid? He looks so familiar. He's the kid from Marriage Story. Oh wow. Oh, I didn't. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, because he's so good in this movie, and I was like, man, they got a great kid actor. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's who it is. That's he funny. plays the son, the son Jackson. Yes, mm-hmm. Jackson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and they're just they're kind of like fun together. I don't know. He's like an old. He's an older dad to like a pretty young kid he seems like he's like seven ish and um they you know he doesn't work <laughs> and he's just able to just spend all the time in the garage with, with his kid mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and we learn later that he has four other children from previous relationships yeah. and that this is really like his last chance to like actually be a successful father yeah and that's why that's you know, a big part of why he's so committed to making it work with Jackson. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he, what's going on in his life at this point is that his daughter, who he hasn't spent too much time with, is coming mm-hmm. to visit him. And uh, yes, his daughter Lizzie, who's of college age. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, he mentions in the car that he has two other kids yes he has two sons like cody and jesse or something like that yeah and she kind of snidely comments oh what's two more (laughs) and (laughs) he's like oh yeah definitely yeah yeah i thought that was really funny and i you know in real life ethan hawk does have a gaggle of children (laughs) he has four (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh which is not as many as five but it is quite close um and uh yeah, I don't know. So, and then also there's another child named Grace who keeps getting mentioned, but like they don't really get into it until right, later in the movie. Right. Um, 
So, yeah, but Ethan Hawke and Rose Byrne, uh, sorry, Tucker Crow and Annie, start a kind of frequent email correspondence. They're just, like, talking to each other all the time. And yeah. at this point, she's still with Chris O'Dowd, too. And it's, you know, she's not, like, they're not, like, in a relationship, but it is definitely, like, approaching some kind of intimate uh, pen pal-ship. That's true. Um, but also, at the same time, Duncan, played by Chris O'Dowd, is sort of starting having a, yes. a separate relationship with a fellow academic at this sort of low grade college where he teaches courses on television and American independent cinema. Yeah. yeah. I'm obsessed with his class that we get to see. <laughs> like we see one of his classes that he's teaching and it's all about the wire. It yeah. seems to only be about the wire because yeah. at the end he says next week when we start season two, you know, <laughs> so you know that the entire class is just about the wire and um he uh it's funny because he he like name checks david simon too who we just saw in the last yes, the last did, movie yeah. we watched david simon was in it so um that was fun connection mm-hmm. um and he also talks about how the wire it would be better if you were versed in greek, greek tragedies tragedy, yeah. yeah um you know, I just love all of that. As as someone who did go to film film and television school, <laughs> it was very real. He he also he also in the class he discusses he sort of um, describes the wire in terms of Charles in Dickensian terms like Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. And um, I just bring this up. It's not mentioned in the movie, but in the book, um, Tucker Crow is a huge Charles Dickens fan. Oh, and he's spends a lot of his time where he doesn't do anything he spends a lot of time reading charles dickens his novels and his letters Mm -hmm. um so i bring this up just because it it sort of um captures that sort of odd thing about people being attracted to multiple people who have similar characteristics even though they may think that they're very different but they might have certain similarities Mm -hmm. um yeah so duncan sleeps with the other teacher she's a she's a movement teacher which i really enjoy not to not to make fun of the the field but it is funny um because he he calls her a dance teacher and she's like actually i'm a movement teacher which is just it's funny i just love academia stuff it reminds me a lot of like the kind of I mean, it's it's not as New York as Maggie's plan, mm-hmm. but there was a, like a, that kind of same like pretentious academia talk. Yeah. Um, yeah. It definitely made me think of that. It's all about the pedagogy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is all about the pedagogy. I did use that word yesterday. Um, yeah. So Duncan and Annie break up, and. Um, and he he's she tells him to take his posters and stuff yeah and he's kind of he doesn't this like the, it's the place that they share but he's kind of like made a little man cave for himself with like a bunch of tucker crow posters yeah so many beautiful photos of young ethan hawk <laughs> yeah and he's like oh i don't want to i don't want to carry them out in the rain because they'll get wet <laughs> yeah and i mean on the one hand i do believe that he doesn't want to like damage any of his tucker crow yeah. things but on the other hand i think he doesn't want to like let go of his relationship with anna yet yeah exactly he wants he wants to have a reason to come back and mm-hmm. get this stuff yeah and you could see that again when he's trying to take the key off of the keychain and he can't do it and she's like just keep it mm-hmm. he's very uncertain and you see that at towards the end of the film that he's he's 
he's very ambivalent about his feelings about Annie as well as the other woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the one person he's not ambivalent about is Tucker Crow. <laughs> yes, that's true. Until the end. Yes, that's also true. Um, so, yeah, so around this time also, Ethan Hawke's daughter Lizzie, who um, was in college, she was pregnant and she went back to London to have the baby. And so she had the baby early so ethan hawk takes jackson with him to london to go visit her in the hospital her and the baby in the hospital and he's like oh i'm gonna be in london any chance you could like we could see each other to annie um so she she goes to was it the tate modern or something yeah um to meet with, with him and she's there waiting all day and but he did not stand her up he has a heart attack the second he walks into the hospital yeah uh, which was there's a fun line where the doctor says that he had the great sense to have a heart attack inside of a hospital and i I really i liked his kind of comedic uh performance like while he's about to have a heart attack like he keeps asking his uh jackson his son he keeps asking like if he's like hot or if he's like Mm -hmm. jet lagged or whatever He's like, are you okay, man? And then Jackson's like, no, are you? I mean, I'm fine. Are you okay? Um, yeah, that kid is so good. I, yeah, what a star. Um, but yeah, so after the heart attack, um, he ends up, you know, calling Annie and explaining what happened. He's like, is there any chance you could like come see me at the hospital? And he's like, oh, and I could use, you know, something to read. Yeah. So she gets him a book um about like uh pen pals like intercontinental uh, pen pals which is cute because that's what they are um and but when she's there she meets jackson at first which is fine because you know she's nice and also she does kind of like want kids at some point so mm-hmm. i think she has a little bit of a motherly thing about her um but then after that like all of his children and ex-wives come into the room <laughs> as well and it's the most stressful thing i've ever seen yeah you know, when I saw the movie the the first time I saw it in the theater, I I thought that scene was hilarious. It was to me it was like a Marx Brothers movie. It, it was just so absurd. Yeah. And and more more women and more children kept coming <laughs> in, and he's having a heart attack, and they're all like sort of like getting down on him, and and he's you know he's not feeling well, and it it's I just thought it was hilarious. I thought it, I was. It killed me. I thought it was a very funny scene. Yeah, yeah it is. I, I mean, there's there's a lot of things about it that weren't funny, but to me, I was laughing while I was watching it. Yeah, I I th- I I enjoyed it too. I, I thought I thought it was really funny, and I just thought like, just I don't know, just yeah, just the absurdity of it, and like, um, and just the chaos, the sheer chaos of everyone, kind of. Mm-hmm. And then his his two son and I loved his two sons that <laughs> the twin brothers or whatever, yeah. and they come in and they're just like listening to music. They don't really care or whatever. Yeah. They're just there. They're just on their phones. And then uh, their mother is like, "Oh, we, you know, uh, spent ten thousand dollars or whatever to get here." And he's like, "Well, I'm sorry." And and he, she's like, "You know, we spent ten thousand dollars, and you're." fine and he's like well i'm sorry that i didn't die and he's like but ten thousand dollars like why is it so expensive and she's like well we weren't gonna fly coach for them to watch their biological father die 
Which I just love that. I thought I yeah. thought that scene was like one of the uh, maybe the best scene in the movie. I just thought it was so so ridiculous and so just just fun to watch. Yeah. They're all getting down on Tucker and he says and he says something like um you know, why why are you all so angry? It's not like I planned this. And then and then the the new husband of one of his ex-wives said, I had three heart attacks and I didn't plan any of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I thought, and I took this down that one of these, uh, this was one of my most Ethan Hawke line nominations. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all kind of getting on him and he says, come on, I'm under siege here, <laughs> which I thought was just so <laughs> like him. Mm-hmm. It, it just, yeah, just really said Ethan Hawke to me. Um. But yeah, and then he asks uh, his the his daughter's boyfriend, who's the father of the baby. He's like, "Ah, play me that song you were gonna play," and it's like this like not very good song, just mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But it just shuts everyone up, and yeah. that's kind of how we leave that scene. And Annie slips out. That happens. Can I can I mention one? Well, I want to men- can I mention two things about about the, that particular scene? Mm-hmm. The first thing is, um, this is another sort of compare and contrast with the novel. In the book, uh, Lizzie loses the baby. Oh wow! She doesn't have the she doesn't have the baby, and he hears about it back in the United States, and then and then his the the, the ex sort of partner that he's been living with says, "Well, I, I'm I, I assume you'll be going to see her," and he says something like, "Well, why?" <laughs> Um, and then they all, all of the kind of the ex-wives kind of shame him into going to London to see to see Lizzie mm-hmm. oh, wow. after she's after she's lost the baby. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention about that uh, scene is that uh, I mean that scene does happen in the book, but it's just for a different kind of a reason. But the, all all the ex-wives and the children gather, but in in the movie one part you were talking about the the kid who plays Jackson. I, I love the scene when um, Annie is leaving and, and the kid is so confused. He looks up at her and he says, whose mom are you? Yeah. And, and then she, and then she looks at him and says, I'm nobody's mom. And it's kind of sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause then you, you get that sense of longing that she has to have a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I really, I really like that. That just that really brief little moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so after all of that, uh, you know, chaos at the hospital, um, Tucker, Crow, and Jackson end up going to Sandcliff with uh, Annie, and they stay there yeah. for a little while. Um, and um, as, they, as they're as they going in, you know, Jackson needs to pee, so uh, Annie takes him into the bathroom and, like, makes him stay with her because, you know, that's what kids do. And then... Um, uh, while she's doing that, though, she realizes that she's left Ethan Hawke alone to go see the Tucker Crow Shrine right, that Duncan right. has left behind. Um, and uh, yeah, so he's down there and she has to like explain everything. Yeah. Yeah. And she um, tells him that she's not going to cut his head off and keep it in a jar or anything like that. Yeah. And I think one of the funniest things like on the wall that he saw it was like uh, f- there was a photo of him with like his high school chess club or something yeah <laughs> um yeah yeah and there's another picture and, and he and it's a picture of him in dusseldorf and he says did i play dusseldorf <laughs> you know, he yeah. just doesn't even remember yeah 
And that, and that's where she explains to him that the guy that she's been writing to him about is actually the person who runs the website that's all about him. Right, mm-hmm. right. And then, and then he puts it together in his head and he says, that's the guy you wasted the last 15 years of your life with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so uh, because she's going to have Tucker Crow in her house with her, her for like a while and he's going to be around town, she realizes that she needs to call Duncan and let him know that this yeah. is happening. Um, but he, he, she keeps calling him and he doesn't call her back. And then finally they're at the beach one day and run into each other. And that's when Duncan and Tucker Crow meet for the first time. And he just cannot believe that it's him. Yeah. He just thinks that he's like, this guy is being put up to it as a like dig at her as a dig at him by her. And she's like, oh, this, he's like, oh, I'm Tucker Crow. And he's like, oh, and I'm Stevie fucking wonder. (laughs) Yeah, but then he thinks about it and, uh, yeah, and realizes. realizes. Yeah. And um, they all have, they end up having dinner together. Yeah, so Tucker Crow, Duncan, Annie, and Jackson have a kind of uncomfortable dinner together. Um, I think, like, Chris O'Dowd is, like, pretty good with the kid for a while at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it kind of turns into this whole thing between Tucker and Duncan about, like, how much, how, you know, how important tucker's work is to him and how little tucker really values that yeah you know like all like you know it's um it's a very you know don't meet your heroes moment yeah definitely um but i do think like i i in this scene like i i duncan gets so upset and it i totally understand it because he's spent he's like dedicated his whole life like half of his life to this person who's like kind of being a jerk to him now and it's it's something that's important to him and he says something like you know like it doesn't matter what you think about all of this because like you're like what you've done is like so important to me like i you know and that's really what matters yeah he says art is not for the artist yeah Um, yeah that's that's the i feel like that's part of um nick hornby's skill is that he can write about these characters who may have lots of flaws but he also finds these moments where he shows their humanity and that's with with duncan that's really the moment where he stands up and says you know it may not mean anything to you but what you've done has meant a lot to me and he says so thank you mm-hmm. and, and and he kind of sort of puts tucker in his place in that mm-hmm. in that scene you know yeah it's a good scene yeah definitely yeah Um, and then it's a little bit after this when we learn about who Grace is, uh, his daughter Grace. Um, she is the daughter of Julie, who is Juliet from the album mm-hmm. Juliet. Um, so Ethan Hawke was playing a show, and Julie came to him with the baby, and um, she, you know, she kind of said like, "Oh, I have to go get something," and he thought that she was like abandoning the baby with him. Um, and so he and he couldn't handle it so he just left the baby in the sink and like left the club yeah and that was uh and that's when he left music and like yikes i get it dude yeah that's pretty bad yeah so once again comparing the book and the and the film Mm -hmm. um this is to me this was a big change um because in the book Julie, 
who is the the subject of the album Juliet mm-hmm. is the is the one woman who he didn't impregnate that he had a relationship with. Oh. Um, actually, Grace in the book was the child of another woman named Lisa, who he was dating when he started to sort of get get catch wind of Julie, and he kind of dumped Lisa and then moved on to Julie. And then late, and then he did Juliet, and it became very successful. And then he was out touring, and he went to that club in Minneapolis. And the night he's in that club, um, he's thinking about how his relationship with Julie, with Julie was incredibly shallow, and there was really nothing to it. And he's sort of hating. He's sort of hating himself and hating like the songs. And then he meets somebody who's who's a friend of this girl's, Lisa's, and then the the friend mentions to him um, that she's had a baby and that it's his, and he he's never even had any awareness that he had this. So that's the reason why he stops everything in the book is because he realizes like everything about Julie and Juliet is meaningless, mm-hmm. and also that's the day that he realized he found out that he had become, he was a father. Mm. But it was not Julie's baby. It was someone else's baby who he had dumped for Julie. Interesting. Do you and, think maybe... And a, and a meaningless relationship. Do you think maybe for, in terms of, like, adapting to a movie, it was just, like, too many women <laughs> to let, you know... Yeah, yeah I think yeah. it might have been a little too complicated to yeah. explain in the movie. Like, I yeah, can see yeah. why they, they made a more streamlined version of that story. Mm-hmm. But I think that in in the, the... For the purposes of the character, I think, I guess, the... The version you're describing from the book kind of makes more sense. I guess makes more sense why he would abandon the music because it has to do with his relationship with Julie. So I could see why the. But yeah, but for the purpose of the movie, yeah, I do. I do get the feeling that maybe it was a little bit too. There were a little bit too many layers to that. Mm-hmm. And he, he Tucker is very. Um... He's very skeptical and cynical about his album, um, Juliet, and that—that's where uh, Duncan really kind of sets him straight that it, that that it, it's important whether he thinks so or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but he—he just—he—it's a very negative. The whole that whole memory and the, his whole relationship—it's it, just like. It's pointless and meaningless to him. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so then Ethan Arcutt tries to call Grace. Lizzie tracked down her number, and he tries to call her, and uh, she makes it pretty clear that she's not interested in any kind of relationship with him. And that, yeah. like, you know, she says something like, whatever you're working out, like, it's not going to involve me. And... Yeah. that's that um yeah so then after that we see um roseburn so at the local the sandcliff museum um is, she's doing a 1964 exhibit and i was thinking about this because you asked me uh prior to our watching this um you asked me to think about when i thought this took place and I, I actually got an answer to that after I asked you that, but go ahead. I was thinking that it was probably like 2014 or 2019, but probably more likely 2014 based on the laptop that she had. 
um, because she <laughs> had like a kind of old MacBook that looked like I would say it was from about circa like 2007, 2008. And, you know, but you can make a laptop last a while. So like an, a laptop from 2007 or 2008 could feasibly still be usable in 2014. And since it was a 1964 um, history event at the museum, exhibit at the at the museum like that would be 50 mm -hmm. years later mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. to me it makes sense for it to be in 2014 i so, did some detective work <laughs> so in, in the in the book uh -huh. it's actually 2008 okay but i realized from <laughs> from some things some articles that they show in the movie very quickly that they're reflecting in the movie that it's probably 2017 or 2018, which is when the movie came out, or they probably made it in 2017. So they're not, mm -hmm. the movie is not going back in time. I was trying to figure it out in terms of age and like how old, because they, according to the way Nick Hornby wrote about Tucker Crow in uh, the book, he was born in 1953. Oh, that's um, earlier than Ethan Hawke was. And actually, now, actually, in the movie, Duncan describes at one point he refers to Tucker as some guy who's old enough to be Annie's father. Yeah, and I so thought he, that was kind supposed of supposed to be a wider age difference for sure. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely thought that was a weird comment to make. I thought maybe he was just being like jealous because um, Ethan Hawke was probably only like five to ten years older than Roseburn. Yeah, so there's just some sort of weird age things going on. Um, I mean, if he was born in 1953 and this took place in 2008, then he was 55 in the book. Mm -hmm. And then he's much older than that if if you go with the with the movie chronology. But then they're I, so they're just kind of playing around with time and age a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if he's supposed to be Ethan Hawke's age, he would have been like 47 in the movie. Yeah. So yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, very interesting. Can well, I mention one other one other little difference mm -hmm. between book and movie? Um, in the movie, the the seaside town it's called the, where she lives is called Sandcliff. Mm -hmm. In the book, the name of the town is Ghoulness. <laughs> <laughs> That's very silly. Which really kind of, Sandcliff sounds like sort of a nice beachy name for a town, but, but ghoulness is sort of more, uh, and I would say it matches more to Annie's feeling about the town that she lives in, where she spent most of her life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she feels, she feels kind of trapped there. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, Okay, so yeah, so this exhibit is happening. I hold strong that this is taking place in 2014 because why on earth would you have a 1964 exhibit in 2017? It makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, well, that was true to the time frame of the book because that exhibit in the book is also about 1964. Maybe it's just because that shark thing. the The mayor really wants it to be about like there was a shark eye that was pickled, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> So, because a shark a shark came up on the shore in the summer of '64, and um, the exhibit is supposed to be kind of around that, <laughs> uh, which is just a little fun, you know. Yeah, I think it's just to supposed to, to give movie. you an idea of like how little happens yeah, in yeah, this town. Definitely. 
Um, but yeah, so at the exhibit, uh, Tucker is kind of backed into a corner and he's forced to play, uh, music at, at the, at the event, which he hasn't done in a really long time. Mm. And another joke at his, speaking of his age, it's not a joke for this person, but it is a joke in the movie is made at his expense where they're saying one of the, the most famous artists of that era, <laughs> and they're implying that he was recording in the 60s, yeah. which he was not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he does get up and play Waterloo Sunset, which would yes. be a time appropriate song. Yes. Um, and it's very nice. I have actually listened to his his cover of Waterloo Sunset quite a bit, like even before seeing this movie, because I have my Ethan Hawke playlist. Everyone could go check it out on Spotify if you'd like to check out my Hawkmas playlist, um, <laughs> which uh, I think Ethan Hawke's birthday will have just passed when this episode comes out. So happy mm-hmm. birthday, Ethan Hawke um but yeah so he sings that and it's very nice and then um chris o'dowd comes in and he sees him performing and it's uh you know it's beautiful it's a nice moment yeah yeah um and then that night uh tucker goes back home with annie and um they're about to i mean they're about to hook up but then jackson threw up all over himself and that you know puts an end to that um I, th- I think they do kind of actually hook up well i mean it depends on what you mean by hook up but we don't have to get into that <laughs> well in the in the i can tell you for sure in the book they definitely hook up oh meaning, okay meaning that meaning that they have they have sex mm-hmm. if, before tucker before jackson comes in to say he's thrown up interesting mm-hmm. i didn't think yeah. that they had had enough time for that in this in the movie yeah it's it's a little hard to it's a little hard to gauge that in the movie mm-hmm but I'll tell you later why why it's definitive that they had sex. Oh, I mean, you could tell me now. <laughs> well, it has to do with the way the film sounded. Oh, oh, is she pregnant? Is he having another child with Annie? Well, okay, in in the book, <laughs> the book is is a much is much more and like the movie has much more of a movie ending. Uh huh. The book has a more kind of an ambivalent ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tucker and Jackson go back to the United States and Annie remains in Ghoulness or Sandcliffe. Um, but, and something that's completely left out in the movie is that there are these long scenes of Annie in the book of her going, going to see a therapist named Malcolm, where she, she talks about her, a lot about her relationship with Duncan and her weird, this relationship with Tucker. And she reveals to her therapist Malcolm towards the end of the book that um, uh, they had sex and that she pretended to go out to to insert some form of birth control, but she was pretending. Um, And so she, they had sex and she just, she didn't know whether she might be pregnant or not, but she was kind of hoping she was. Wow. And, and at the end of the book, it's not she knows that she does she doesn't know whether she's pregnant but she could be um but she kind of makes the decision that she's done she's done with ghoulness and she's probably kind of done with england and you kind of you do get the sense that she's gonna fly over to the united states and reunite with tucker and jackson but it doesn't say that overtly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. interesting wow well, 
the movie ends with um, basically Rose Byrne breaks things off with Ethan Hawke because she doesn't think they can make long distance work and he needs to be at home in America with Jackson. And um, so she drops them off at Lizzie's house because uh, Lizzie's boyfriend left her. So they're going to be with her and the baby for a little bit before they go back to America. And then we see uh, Chris O'Dowd, Duncan, wants to get back with Rose Byrne. They have a kind of exchange at a bar. Um, and she turns him down and then moves to London, um, which this is kind of the movie ending you were talking about, where she, you know, finds herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, she gets a job at a little art gallery in London. Um, but then Ethan Hawke is, happens to be visiting again, and so then she goes to see him, and then it's kind of, you're kind of left with, you know, the implication that they're going to rekindle rekindle things. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's more than an indication. It, did you did you watch the title, the end titles? Oh, yeah. So during the end credits, um, yeah, so we see that... Um, Tucker has put out a new album and Duncan is reviewing it on his on his blog. Um, and the the new album is a lot about his like relationship with Annie. Right, right. It's just like about a lot of kind of mundane. Yeah, but happy mundane like old person things. Yeah. 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 Right. And I, I forget the name of the was it called was the album called Now Where Was I or something uh, yeah, like that? Yeah, Where Was I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that it's was fun. Funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had pulled up. Oh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the music in the movie. So they basically wrote in it. They wrote almost an entire album, you know, to to be the music of Tucker Crow. Mm. And um, there were a few people that worked on this, um, notably Ryan Adams uh connor oberst from right. uh bright eyes thank you and um uh robin hitchcock who i wasn't familiar with mm-hmm. but um yeah so connor oberst wrote lax which is the song that we hear at the beginning of the movie the kind of like upbeat rock song that's playing during yeah. the montage um, is that is that the song where he says he's singing it's raining in la and everyone's gone mad yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I like that. It's a fun song. I I do really like um, Sunday Never Comes. I think that one was written by Robin Hitchcock. Um, that's the one where he says something like, you know, Saturday is gone and Sunday never comes. And it's, it's kind of a nice song. Um, and then the one that Ryan Adams wrote was like 20th something 20th call of the day or something Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um yeah so that one was written by ryan adams and fun connection this big big connection here so ryan adams wrote that song for this movie he had also previously written music for another movie that you might remember because we saw it together uh danny collins he wrote he wrote yeah yeah, he wrote some of the music for that movie which stars Uh um, bobby cannavale husband of rose byrne it's all connected. Oh, uh, more connections. Brought it together, yeah. More connections. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I liked the music. I thought they did a really good job of capturing something about, like, you know, singer-songwriters of the 90s. Like, specifically, like, the Sunday Never Comes it really felt kind of, like, Duncan chic to me. You know, that's the vibe I was getting. I think that there were, like, a lot of... There were a lot of examples that they had, one of like, you know, like Jeff Buckley, um, you know, there were some some clear influences that they had there. Mm-hmm. So um, can I can I mention some things that are in the book that, that kind of get into the musical part? Mm-hmm. 
this is Nick Hornby, obviously being a musical fanboy. Um, uh, let me see here. In the in the fake Wikipedia entry about Tucker Crow, um, it talks about how the album Juliet was released in 1986. The story of a relationship with Julie Beatty compared to Dylan's Blood on the Tracks and Springsteen's Tunnel of Love. The first song is And You Are, and the last song is You and Your Perfect Life. And it says, Jeff Buckley, Michael Stipe, and Chris Martin have talked about the influence of Juliet on their careers. <laughs> Uh, there was a Tucker Crow tribute album in 2002 called Wherefore Art Thou, Juliet Songs. Oh, called Wherefore Art Thou, sorry. And there's also more information that when Juliet came out in 1986, um, it was nominated for a Grammy for Best Album. Um, and I looked that up and found that in 1986, actually Paul Simon's Graceland won the best album mm. and tucker supposedly was nominated for best male rock performance for you and your perfect life and in that year robert palmer won for the song addicted to love interesting yeah yeah that's fun um yeah i was reading a an interview or an article from new york it's from la times about the music in this movie and they had a little quote from nick hornby where he was talking about like yeah it's one thing for me to like say all of these things in a book but the real challenge was like when they were making the movie they actually had to like make music that mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. that sound that made sense for all of the things i had said in the book um and he was saying that they had done a good job of it which i agree can I also share with you the track list to Juliet, the actual track list? Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. So on the on the Juliet album on side one, the first song is called And You Are, and the second called is second song is called Adultery. <laughs> and the third song is called We're in Trouble. And the fourth song is called In Too Deep. And the last song is called Who Do You Love? And then on the side two of Juliet, the first song is called Dirty Dishes. The second call song is called The Better Man. The third song is called The 20th Call of the Day, which I think is referenced. Mm -hmm. The fourth song is called Blood Ties. And then the last song is You and Your Perfect Life. Nice. So I, that's part of the, for me, that was part of the fun of the book is that Nick Hornby would get into the detail of like actually trying to come up with these titles of mm -hmm. every track on, the, mm -hmm. on this album and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, a lot of fun detail in the movie and also the book, it would seem. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, and we also didn't mention the director is Jesse Peretz, who also directed um, Our Idiot Brother, uh, oh. if you remember that. Yeah. Um, did you watch that? I did, yeah. Yeah. With uh, Steve Paul Burrell, Rudd. right? Is it Paul Rudd? Yeah, you're right. It's Paul Rudd. Yeah. Um. Do you remember that? We saw that in uh, Santa Inez, or Buellton. Oh, my God. Yes. yes, <laughs> at, yes, the, yes. at the theater wow. by the McDonald's. It starts, I remember that movie because it starts with Fool on the Hill, the Beatles song. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really remember it that well. I just remember where we saw it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay, well... Jonathan, do you have something you'd like to share with us? Sure. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, wait. wait. Yeah, we didn't do most Can even I... hawk lines. Wait, 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 wait. Can okay. I just mention a couple of other sort of interesting notes about the about Juliet Naked? Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes. Mm -hmm. That I 
came across. Um, apparently, during the filming of, of Juliet Naked, Rose Byrne was six months pregnant, and they covered it up with careful cinematography. Oh, wow. wow. They did a good job. And even more interesting to me, during the filming of the movie, Rose Byrne cut off her finger with a blender, and it had to be surgically reattached. Oh, my gosh. Oh my God. <laughs> That's insane. Was she um, blending something in the movie, or was it just during the, the ta- period I, no. of filming? I just I think it was just during the period of filming. Wow. And also just one other little note of trivia is that in the scene where Ethan Hawke or Tucker is singing Waterloo Station, um, standing next to Rose Byrne is Nick Hornby. Oh, wow. that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's like when Stephanie so. Meyer was sitting in the diner in Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just a little Juliet Naked trivia. And I, one other thing that I would just like to mention um, going back to the book is that there is a it The book takes a little longer to get into the story of Tucker. It, it focuses more on Duncan and Annie initially. And it starts at the very beginning with a pilgrimage that Duncan and Annie take together to the United States to visit all the seminal spots of Tucker Crow's life and history. Oh, my mm-hmm. God. And there, there's a part where they go to um, to the Bay Area, and he wants to go find the house in Berkeley where Julie Beatty now lives. And she, she Annie refuses to go with him. Mm-hmm. And so he, he takes the bar to Berkeley, and he finds the house, and he meets this weird kid there who is also sort of a weird um crowologist <laughs> and who's been who's been kind of stalking the house and the kid happens to know where there's a key hidden to the house and oh duncan really needs to pee because he's been on the bark for so long and so the kid talks him into going into julie's house and, and urinating in her bathroom and um while he's in there he sees a piece of artwork that uh that tucker drew of uh of julie in her house which later in the book he references to tucker and tucker is really freaked out and to, to find out that he actually kind of like stalked and went into her home yeah but it's a very it's a, it's a very funny sort of segment when they when they go on this journey and they go to minneapolis to the pit club and and go go to, go visit where he grew up in montana and things like that wow yeah so they cut some things, but I think that always happens. Yeah, it's yeah. it's so In hard adaptations. to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do we have any most Ethan Hawke lines? Can I? I have a few, but can I? I can I hear yours before I? Yeah. Um. I well, I think the under siege one was <laughs> up there for me, just because it it felt so natural coming out of him. Anything where he says something, and I feel like it's just like it's really natural like that i do tend to think that those are pretty ethan hawk lines even if the substance isn't like you know about uh, philosophy or art or whatever mm-hmm. you know i still think those really natural lines are count but um the one that i did the other one that i did write down was um uh he's talking to her about how um you know he like wasted the last 20 years of his life and she wasted the last 15 and he's like well you know a you subtract all the time that you spent reading good books, having enjoyable conversations and sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was very Ethan Hawke that he wouldn't count that. 
He also talks about spending 14 years watching Law and Order because it's such a good series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan? Um, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't get too many quotes then. I just had some, some quotes that I thought were funny, but none that were, like, like, like the part in the movie where the, he, uh, Duncan is showing someone who's visiting the, his little shrine and then the woman says, he's so gorgeous. And Duncan says, thank you. (laughs) Which I thought was funny. That was probably my favorite line in the movie, but I I didn't have too many Ethan Hawke quotes. Yeah, I I did really. I didn't take as many notes on this movie. I only took three pages of notes, which is not that much for me. Um, because no, but I was just so into it. I was very engaged with this movie, so I didn't really take as many notes as I might have. Um, Warren, how about you? Well, I had a few. Um, one one was at a little inter- exchange he has with Annie, where she, she says something to him, and she says no. She uses the term no pressure. And Tucker responds and says, pressure is a choice. <laughs> yeah, I did like that. Yeah. And um, there's another, I think this was him, where he's, I think he said something like, one of the problems of screwing up, screwing up your life is you can't get a reset. Yeah, the, I remember that. That happens after yeah. the uh, the scene where, after everyone's left, after he has the heart attack, and he's kind of feeling like, he was hoping that coming there would be like a way to reset but his past no matter what his past kind of just Mm -hmm. ends up catching up with him which i think makes you feel for him a little more there's two things he says to jackson that i thought were very funny um right after jackson pees Tucker says to him, don't forget to wash your hands, buddy. Show her what we're made of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the other thing that I thought was really great is he's, you know, a little bit in the movie and a little bit more in the book. um, Jackson is very fixated on the possibility of Tucker dying. Mm. He he has this like weird obsession about him dying. Um, But at one point, in the movie, Tucker says to Jackson, you're going to have XYs of your own long before I've kicked the bucket. Yeah, yeah. that was good. <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was a really great line. Yeah. That's more of a Tucker line than an Ethan Hawke line, but mm-hmm. I liked it. Yeah, I mean, there is something, you know, Ethan Hawkey about having later in life children. Mm-hmm. Having, you know, older children and younger children. Uh, is... Yeah, I feel like the, the character that he the way he parents feels analogous to some of the other characters that he's, the other dads he's played. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted to read a couple quotes from Ethan Hawke about Juliet naked real quick, and then we'll get into the Hawk fact. Oh, good. Um, so there was an interview in IndieWire that was mostly about Blaze, but you know, Blaze came out around the same time that he was doing several other things, including Juliet naked. Um, and so he said, um, in Juliet Naked, I get to play Charlie Sexton and being a father is the biggest part of my life. The central issues of that movie are about fatherhood, art, failure, and success. I wanted to do a comedy. I hadn't done one since Reality Bites. He's like Troy Dyer looks at 50. You could imagine him evolving into Tucker Crow in some way. 
I could see that movie coming out of a studio like Paramount. It's old. Fa- it's an old-fashioned studio comedy. My mother and my wife's friends will love this movie. It's not Moonlight. Um, there were there's kind of a lot of interesting stuff that he said in there. Um, mm-hmm. one thing I thought was interesting was that he said he hadn't done a comedy since Reality Bites, which I don't believe is true. I think that Maggie's plan is a comedy, even yeah. though it's upsetting. It is still a, it comedy. Is a comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like there must have been a few others. Can I, um, can I ask a question? Yeah. Of the two of you. Uh, who do you think this film or this story is about? I think it's about, um, Rose Byrne's character. Yeah, I do think it's about Annie, but I think, um, A.O. Scott actually had an interesting uh, observation about this movie. He said, well, not really about like who's the center of the movie, but he said there's something tiresome and incurious about the film's romanticism, which rests on the canard that girls aren't really into music. They like musicians and babies and having babies with musicians, but don't share in either the creative passion that motivates Tucker or the ardent devotion that occupies Duncan. The fact that this is presented as a compliment as evidence of female superiority doesn't make it better. The guys are kind of childish, and Annie and most of the other women in the movie are much more sensible and mature, but it's still the dudes who demand most of the attention and the women who are expected to derive satisfaction from granting it. Mm, so That's good. Yeah, it is good. I think it's, I mean, I think it's a little harsh. I'm fine just enjoying this movie and not thinking too critically about, you know, the roles of men and women in the movie, but I do think that um, it is technically about Annie, but we are like distracted a little bit by, you know, Tucker and Duncan mm-hmm. in Annie's story. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's kind of how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From from reading it first, I felt that it was about Annie, um, but then when I saw the movie. Like I said, I never really had anybody in my mind for Tucker, but when I saw the movie, I felt that um, Ethan Hawke's performance kind of overpowered the movie a little bit. And so so I felt that my my attention shifted a little bit more to Tucker in, in the movie because of his performance. Mm-hmm. Although like now watching it again, I, 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 I do think that Rose Byrne and Chris O'Dowd are, real, are quite good. It's just not as showy, maybe, as as Ethan Hawke's performance. Yeah, I agree. And I do think part of that, part of why Ethan Hawke is so overpowering, it's not just his performance, but it's like the history, you know, the intertext of Ethan Hawke, whatever. But like, it's like the history of Ethan Hawke as being, you know, like he mentioned being Troy Dyer from Reality Bites. That character is part of who he is as Tucker Crow in this movie, I think. You know, I I do think it's like all kind of connected. And I think that his, by this point, like almost 40 years of 30 30 years of 30 plus years of working by this point like kind of makes him you know bigger than he might have been otherwise in this movie you know what i mean Hmm. i don't know i do know i do feel that way (laughs) um yeah so i think it all plays into his his ethan hawk his filmography contributes to tucker's grandness 
Um, yeah. Okay. I think that's, that's what I got. Um, Jonathan, would you like to do a hawk fact? Share a hawk fact? Sure. Yeah. Share something with us. What do I say? Jonathan, would you like to share something with us? Yeah. It's time for a hawk fact. It's time for a hawk fact. Warren, would you like to do a hawk noise? Oh, that was really good. Thank you. All right. Lay it on us. Okay. Well, uh, I was looking at, um, you know, in this movie, Hawk plays Crow. So I was looking a little bit into the relationship between Hawks and Crows. And uh, unsurprisingly, they're not the most, uh, they're not the best of friends. Um, there's a thing that uh, Crows and Ravens do. And Crows and Ravens are part of the same family called Corvids. Um, and they both do this thing called mobbing, which is basically uh, where... Uh, uh, crows and ravens are very social creatures they're they tend to hang out in groups together and so what they'll do is they'll um, often kind of gang up on a hawk that's nearby and try to get it to fly away and even though uh, hawks are far stronger and more um, I mean they're they're predators they're and they have strong beaks and strong talons, but they um, will often get kind of uh, scared, not scared off necessarily, but pushed off by the ravens. And that's in part because there's there'll be a group of them and also in part because um, they it's just not worth the effort to fight back. So they just kind of, well, they'll typically just fly away. Hawks will typically just fly away from a confrontation with, uh a raven or a crow because it just doesn't just isn't worth isn't worth dealing with it basically Mm -hmm. and there's this other habit that um that crows and ravens do where they uh they'll grab another animal's tail and pull at it while it's eating something else and the idea is to get that animal to attack them so that the other to basically create a distraction so that the other crows or ravens can steal their the lunch, food. basically. Dang. And so there's actually a video I saw of a hawk that was eating by a lake and a raven, a crow comes up to it and starts like tugging at its tail to try to get it to, um, to give up its meal, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're really kind of aggressive, uh, Crows are really kind of aggressive against even an animal that's far more powerful than it is, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Very interesting. Thank you for that fact, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, Jonathan. He's, yeah. Yes? Did you have oh, a question? Did you say th- oh, did you say- I'm sorry? Oh, did you say thank you? Oh, oh, no been going so well oh oh i think you're breaking up oh you froze for a second yeah, we were losing i just it. said thank you oh okay. Oh, okay i thought you i thought you had a question but yeah, yeah i that's... said thank you jonathan you're welcome <laughs> you're welcome um cool well do we have any final thoughts about the film or ethan hawk or anything <laughs> no no i i when... enjoyed it i i mm-hmm. thought it was fun when is Ethan Hawke going to make a film with Britt Marling? Oh, God. <laughs> I I hope that happens. I 
Um, it doesn't When's seem, that going to happen? It doesn't seem like he's doing a feature for a while because of COVID. Um, yeah. He's doing... Uh, do you know he's gonna? He's working on a documentary about Paul and Joanna Newman? Yes, I did know that. Yeah, so that's what he's working on next, I think. He had a... He had... Before pre-COVID, he was this year going to make a film uh, called Camino Real based on the Tennessee Williams play. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's on pause and will hopefully happen when things are, you know, better in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, but no, I would, I mean, that's the dream for me. A hundred percent. The dream is for Britt Marling and Ethan Hawke to be in one <laughs> project together. Be- it might be too much for me, though. I don't know if I could handle it. Oh, I I can handle it. <laughs> I'm ready. Um, great. Well... Uh, I have been Harper. You can find me on the internet at Harping About. Um, and something I've been enjoying outside of Ethan Hawke is uh, Sean Mendes has a new single out. It's called Wonder, and I've listened to it about 200 times since Thursday night. So, wow. Yeah, it's really good. I love it a lot. Um, Woodwreck. There's a music video that goes with it that's also very nice to watch. What is, it's called Wonder? Yes, Wonder by Sean Mendes. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think it's the first time I've recommended a song in a while. The last thing I can think of was when uh, "Lights Up" by Harry Styles came out, and I listened <laughs> to that two hundred times in a day. Amazing. So, um, so yeah. So that's my rec, uh, Jonathan. Where can the people find you, and what would you like to plug? Okay, you sure. can find me on Instagram and Letterboxd at John Zavaleta. Uh, keep it musical. The thing I enjoyed was yesterday we watched. Um, uh, song exploder the netflix yes, adaptation of the podcast <laughs> yeah. of the same name and they had uh speaking of michael stipe they had rem on talking about losing my religion which was cool for me yeah and uh they had alicia keys and uh Lynn manuel miranda ty dolla sign yeah it was only a few only it was few only four episodes yeah, yeah um but it was it was good I, and they're yeah. each like 40 minutes or something yeah, like 30, 30 yeah 30 minutes so it's if you're looking to knock knock a show out in less than a couple hours, then yeah, it's a good 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 one to check out. It's a great show. Uh, we love Rishikesh Hirway mm-hmm. here on the pod. We're a big fan. So big fans. <laughs> All right, Warren. Um, I you have expressed that you would like for people not to find you. So we'll I would skip like for that. people not to find me. I like to <laughs> keep things. I like to keep things on the D- DL and keep off under the grid. Uh-huh. <laughs> under, so not off the grid, <laughs> under it. Off the grid. That's how. That's how you're hidden in you are. So deep, you're under it. Um, that's right. That's correct. Uh, so, and I'm assuming you don't have anything to plug. But what have you been enjoying outside of Ethan Hawke? So I'm not going to talk music. I'm going to talk streaming. Um, mm-hmm. I want to mention two things. I, as you know, Harper, I just finished watching the crime psychological crime thrill thriller series, The Ball, which is a show from 2013 through 2016 with Gillian Anderson and Jamie Dornan. Um, she plays a superintendent detective who is called to Belfast to pursue and track a serial killer who is played by Jamie Dornan. Um, I'm a big fan of crime and mystery novels, and this is sort of like the, I would say, a good television equivalent of such. And I, I, 
I found it quite compelling. And the last episode really is wow. Um, so that's, in case you haven't heard of that or seen it, I strongly, and you like crime dramas, I would strongly recommend that. I watched that on, it was on Amazon Prime. And I also want to give a plug to a documentary that I watched this weekend on Netflix. Um, let me get the name correctly. Uh, it's called Dick Johnson is Dead. Have you heard of that? No. no. So this is a documentary made by a woman who is primarily a cinematographer for documentaries. But in this case, it's, it's sort of her own story about her father, who is a psychiatrist named Dick Johnson, um, who has had a heart incident and is suffering from dementia. And she and her father, he's in his 80s, she and her father are coming to a point of mutual acknowledgement of his eventual passing. And as a part of that, there is a time period where she moves him from Seattle, from his home in Seattle, to come live with her in her one-bedroom apartment in New York City. And while he's living there with her, they make a movie about where they just talk about him dying and where they also stage different possible ways that he might die in New York City. And he, he is a willing participant in the documentary, including the scenes of his own death. And there and, and it kind of concludes with a simulated version of his own funeral. And it's a um, it's a really it's a profound and funny and sad and touching movie. And I would recommend that um, to anybody who is looking for something thought-provoking and um to watch on netflix it's a it's a it's a good watch wow very cool it's called dick it's called dick johnson is dead and the filmmaker's name is Kristen johnson that's that's dick's daughter mm-hmm. very cool yeah well thanks so much for joining us on the pod this was very fun we were very glad to have you back for like a full episode yeah um good. it was Long my pleasure and this is a this is a very meaningful story to me, so I was I appreciate that you allowed me the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, good night, everyone. Uh-huh.